Are we alone? This is one of the questions that's nagged Western civilization for decades. Are we alone? The search for an answer to this question is the search for meaning amidst a sea of purposelessness. Are we alone? It's a question that's a search for comfort amidst an inevitable feeling of loneliness. Are we alone? It's a search for permanence in a world that's fleeting. Are we alone? It's a search for hope outside of ourselves that we know that we need. Are we alone? I want you to compare two different quotes that are in a way are an answer to that question. First one, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Quote number two. We are surrounded by a generation that can find no one home in the universe. If anything marks our generation, it is this. In contrast to this, as a Christian, I know who I am, and I know the personal God who is there. I speak and he hears. I am not surrounded by mere mass nor energy particles, but he is there. And if I have accepted Christ as my Savior, then though it will not be perfect in this life, yet moment by moment, on the basis of the finished work of Christ, this person-to-person relationship with a God who is there can have reality for me. The first quote is from astronomer and philosopher Carl Sagan. The second is from Christian philosopher and pastor Francis Schaeffer. Notice the difference. The first quote, are we alone? Saying, yes. We, all we have is ourselves. The second quote, saying, are we alone? No, we have God. We have God. Friends, you may call this a crutch, having God. But you know, everyone is searching for a crutch. All of us are slipping and flailing. It's like we're trying to stand on ice. Constantly, feet tumbling. And God is the sturdy ground on which we were meant to stand. And here's the good news. He has come down to dwell with us so that we can actually stand on him. Friends, he does this in the book of Genesis in our story that we'll see today. And he's done this in the greatest way through his son, Jesus Christ, through whom he has fully and finally revealed himself. So today... And what seems like a technical passage, there is a beautiful reality that God saves his people and God dwells with his people. So here is the main point of our passage, the main point of our time together. I'd like to do this each week for the passage we consider. Live in light of all the privileges that Christ has won for us. Not just that he has saved us from sin, but also that he has saved us to dwell with us. Live in light of all that Christ has won for us, not just that he has saved us from sin, but also that he saved us to dwell with us. So I invite you to take a Bible 
Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. You'll find this on page 65 in the Red Pew Bible in front of you. Well, if you're new to Old Oak or newer to Old Oak, or just by way of a reminder, you should know that this is what we do pretty much every week. We take a portion of the Bible, which we, which we believe to be God's word, how God reveals himself, how he reveals how he saves us, how he reveals how he wants us to live. And we take a portion of that Bible, we seek to explain it. We seek to explain it according to its original intention. And we seek to explain it within the entire story of the Bible which has Jesus as its center. After we explain it, we seek to apply it to our lives. As a whole, then, we call this expositional preaching. It means exposing what's in the passage of the Scripture, not imposing our views on it. All right, so usually we plot our way through different books, and it's good to be back with you in the book of Exodus. This is our eighth week there, the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Now, we've described our, book in, uh, our journey through this book not as a walking expedition, not as a helicopter tour, but more like a Jeep safari, right? We're going to cover a lot of ground fairly quickly, but we're able to stop and, and get out and look at details every now and then. You've got to be careful like Jurassic Park. You may stop right by the T-Rex exhibit. <laughs> so on the Jeep tour, if we take a look at the rearview mirror, see where we've been, we remember some things. We remember that Exodus began with the Israelites in bondage in Egypt. So after seeking refuge from famine in the land of Canaan, the Israelites ended up in Egypt where they multiplied. They did well. God's fulfilling his promise. But where they also ended up in slavery. So the book opens by highlighting their situation in Egypt after they had been there for 400 years. And things were getting worse and worse. These were dark times. But in the midst of those dark times, God was preparing to save his people. He had heard their prayers. He was raising up a leader. And he was revealing himself anew to them. This is really what Exodus chapters 1 through 6 cover. Then God delivered Israel from bondage, and he even saves them from his own judgment. As he gets glory over Egypt and their so-called gods through the ten plagues. And then he proves that he has fully and totally saved them in the crossing of the Red Sea. This is what happens in Exodus chapter 7 through 15. And having now saved them, God then worked to make them a people for himself. So we built up their faith as he led them through the wilderness in chapters 15 to 18. Then he established a covenant with them, which is a relationship with binding promises. We just finished describing that. That lasts from chapter 19 to 24. So if Israel was to follow this covenant, their side of the covenant, they would show their devotion to God and they would represent God to the world around them. The world around them could not see God, but they could see Israel. And by seeing how Israel lived, they should have seen the character of God. So this is where we are in the story. Let's pick up by reading the first part of Exodus 25. We're going to read the first nine verses. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, 
spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Here's the word of the Lord. Four points for our time as we go through Exodus chapters 25 through 31. Three points relating to this text and the last point relating to the whole story of of the Bible. First point, God wants to dwell with his people. Secondly, God takes up residence with his people. Third, God invites his people in. Fourth, God still wants to dwell with his people. So first, God wants to dwell with his people. So the section we read, chapter 25, verses 1 to 9, if you could pick one verse that sets the agenda for the entire section, one verse that kind of hangs over chapters 25 to 31, it's verse 8. It says this, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So if you read this section in advance, which is why we publish it in advance, just to prepare your hearts, uh, just a clue, uh, you'll find just a lot of moving parts, Exodus 25 to 31. And if you read through it, it, you might get lost. It could be very easy to get lost. So that's why it's important to keep in mind this purpose statement. Verse 8. It says this, that I may dwell in their midst. So everything that comes after this in chapters 25 to 31 serves that purpose. It advances that purpose. That I may dwell in their midst. So what's God doing? What does this mean? Dwelling with his people. Well, the answer comes in the text. Let's notice a little bit closer. You see that word sanctuary in verse 8? We just get a sense of the weight of God dwelling with his people by looking at that word sanctuary. We say, well, what's so special about that word sanctuary? Well, this is the only place in these chapters that this word is used. Now, the English word for sanctuary means a place to run for safety. But the meaning of the Hebrew word is a lot deeper. It literally means a place where holiness is. So what what God is setting up here then is a place where he is in his holiness, a place where the full reality of his glory is there and would come to dwell among his people. So this is a big deal, setting up a sanctuary. So why is God dwelling among his people such a big deal? I think the significance of it, we can see it get even deeper when we remember what came right before Exodus 25. Do you remember where we left off Israel? Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel are on Mount Sinai, where God has shown up in glory. So it's summertime. You may have favorite childhood memories of summer. Maybe it's summer camp. Maybe it's uh, the summer after your senior year of high school. So if you had a group of friends during the summer, you just, you loved those memories if you've built, if you had experiences together, and you wonder what will happen when it's over. We don't want it to to end. And so here's Israel on Mount Sinai, a magnificent experience. Surely they had wonder. We want this to keep going. We want this to last forever. And what's going to happen when we leave this place? So 
in steps God, who tells them about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, then, is a way to keep Sinai going. So, God wants to dwell with his people. Even at the outset, friends, here we can see the heart of God and how he operates. So keep in mind, the tabernacle was not a place where the people went to be with God. It was a place where God went to be with them. The tabernacle was not the Tower of Babel. It was God coming down, not them coming up to God. He set it up, not them. So from the beginning, here's a clue of how God pursues his people. God pursues his people even when his people have ran away from him. That's how God reveals himself throughout Scripture. He did not just rescue them either, but God wants to stay with them. God did not just have quality time with them. He had quantity time with them. So from the beginning, here is another clue that we know God only in the way he has set up, not in the way by our own design. You notice that phrase in verse 9, kind of toward the end, or at the very beginning of it. It says, exactly as I show you. Exactly as I show you. Does that sound like the God of your own understanding? No. This is God revealing himself, not us coming up with what we think about God. So here, God wants to dwell with his people. Point two, God takes up residence. So we've seen what hangs over this entire passage. God wants to dwell with his people, continue the bond that's forged at Sinai. And how does he do this? Well, he does it in two ways. First, he takes up residence, and then he will invite them in. Now, by first taking up residence, he does that by telling them to build a tent kind of strange. You see that word tabernacle, that's probably not a word you use every day. That word tabernacle is just that. It's the common word for tent. Now we have to say this was not an ordinary tent. The Lord dwelt in it. But don't skip over the fact that this was the common word for tent. So think about where the Israelites lived at this point. Did they live in houses? Were they settled in an area? No, the Israelites were camping literally all the time. They lived in tents. So you know what God does? He says, you know what? I'm going to live in a tent too. His tent was just like theirs. He had rooms in his tent. He had a fireplace in his tent. And he had a yard in the front of his tent, just like theirs. I've heard someone say that at Sinai, God came down. And in the tabernacle, God moved into the neighborhood. So chapters 25 to 27, they contain instructions about building this tent or the tabernacle. Now, we want to help ourselves read this so that we know what's going on in some of the details. And each detail is purposeful. We don't have time to cover every single one. With that being said, don't let the end goal of reading a section like this don't let the end goal being, oh, I want to picture what the tabernacle was like in my head. I want to reconstruct that image. That's okay. That just can't be the end goal. Here's a clue, friends, for reading all of Scripture. Find how it reveals the heart of God. So here in this place, in this section, here is God's heart that identifies with his people. They live in tents. He's going to live in a tent. Here is God's heart that wants to be near his people. 
So friends, don't just read of the tabernacle. Ask, why would God give his people a tabernacle? What does that show of his heart? And then ask, how are we like this people here? And how has God done the same and even more for us through Christ? That's a way we can read all of Scripture, seeing God's heart and how he has done the same for us through Christ. So God takes up residence in the tabernacle, this tent, and the description of this residence, it goes from the inside out. The tabernacle had three zones. The innermost zone, called the most holy place, and that was still in the tent, and then still in the tent, separated from the most holy place, was the holy place, and outside that still was the courtyard. Three zones. Now, if you think about it, we talked about this is Sinai continued. This is a similar setup to Sinai. We had Moses alone at the top of the mountain, kind of the most holy place, and then Aaron and the rest of the elders in the next zone, and then everyone else in the zone after that. This is a similar setup to Sinai, keeping Sinai going, the tabernacle, God's residence. So it starts with the innermost zone, the most holy place. If you glance down at your Bible, chapter 25, it talks about the most holy place, this innermost zone, from chapter 25, verses 10 to 22. The most holy place. And the main thing it focuses on in the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenants. Now, there are lots of significant details about this Ark, and it's not like Noah's Ark. It's uh, a smaller box than that. Um, But I'm just going to highlight some basic things to know about the Ark. The Ark is a footstool. Now, kings, when they had their thrones, they would have, you know, their chair, their throne, and they would place their feet on a footstool. Makes sense. It's It's a stool for your feet. The ark uh, and other places in the Bible is described as the place on earth where God is enthroned, enthroned between the cherubim. So verse 22 says in chapter 25, if you flip to the next page, I think, oh no, at the bottom of the page, it says, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the ark is a symbol of God's rule. It's a royal place. And God will rule his people through his law. Do you notice what's put inside the ark? The tablets, the the commandments. And so placing the uh, commandments inside the ark was a reminder that the people had recognized God's rule over them. But then there's another component of this ark that we're told about, if you read through it. We're not just told about what's in it. We're not just told about its shape. We're also told about the lid. It's called a cover. Here it's called a mercy seat. Now that word for seat or cover is the same word for atonement. Atonement meaning paying a price to cover an offense. So in the ark then, we have a symbol of God's justice, which is the law. And we have a symbol of God's mercy. So put this together in the ark. The cover. Literally a cover for sin. God would cover the penalty of his people breaking the law. All that combined in the ark. This is the most holy place. So, all right, we're describing God's residence going from the inside out, 
We're in the most holy place. We go out to the holy place. The next zone, the holy place, starts in chapter 25, verse 23. And it goes through most of chapter 26. Uh, Yeah, to the end of the chapter 26, really. So you look at chapter 5, starting in verse 23 through verse 30. It describes the table that went into the holy place. And you look at verse 30 from chapter 25, and you see that they were to keep bread on this table constantly. Now, this bread was not for God. It was for priests. It served as a reminder that God was the priest's sustenance. He sustained them. He nourished them. Then in the holy place, it also describes this lamp that went in there as well. The lampstand included several meaningful symbols. It, It was bright. There was fire. There was gold, all symbolizing the presence of the Lord. The lamp itself, you notice, it contained buds, it contained blossoms, it contained almonds. The stages of life for a living tree. But again, we notice in chapter 27, verse 20, that they were to keep this lamp burning constantly. Now, just so you don't get lost in all these details, between the table and the lamp, there is a simple but beautiful reality about about God's residence that there is always bread on the table and there is always a light on. Both things were to be kept constant. So here, he provides life and he provides light, always, never ceasing. So just a sneak preview. Later on, Jesus will say that he is the life. Jesus will also say that he is the light. That's just a sneak preview, okay? We don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. All right, describing God's residence. Start in the innermost zone, most holy place, go out, the holy place. Now, chapter 26 deals mainly with the curtains of the tabernacle. Now, toward the end, we see that the holy place is separated from the most holy place. Now, there's a lot of other symbolism and other details we don't have time to cover. One is the different colors used in the tabernacle. The other is the materials used in the tabernacle between the gold, the silver, and the bronze. But then finally in chapter 27, we get to the outermost zone of the tabernacle. This is outside of the tent, the courtyard. And the first thing we see in this zone, the courtyard, is the bronze altar. So the first thing that Joshmo Israelite would have seen when he entered into the tabernacle is this bronze altar. Now, what would that remind him of? What would that show to him? This would show, and this is the place where he made sacrifices, this would show that access to God came through sacrifice and could not come without sacrifice. This would remind them that they did not deserve God's presence. Rather, in God's presence, they deserved his judgment. But at the altar, what should have happened to them would happen to an animal. An animal would die instead of them. So, friends, here is God's gracious provision. But notice, you can see in the details, this animal sacrifice is something that had to be repeated. You can even take a look at chapter 27, verse 3. And God gives instructions for how to continue to clean up what's left over. Like a part of the construction of the, uh, the altar itself would be to collect up the leftovers and to collect up the ashes. They had to keep on doing this again and again and again and again. 
So it's just an anticipation built in that there is a better sacrifice coming, one that's perfect, one that's final. So here's God's residence. Three zones. It's a gracious provision. Already we can see that God is inviting us in. There's bread on the table. The light is on. But we also feel attention. We see God's grace here. But we also see things that prevent us from going into God's presence. We see this altar that reminds us that our sin separates us from God. We see also this veil that blocks off the most holy place. In the most holy place, the innermost zone would have been a beautiful place. You see the cherubim on the walls, the white linen, the gold. It's a place that looks a lot like the Garden of Eden. So here is God wanting to dwell in peace with his people, just like he did in Eden. But there's something that prevents them from doing that. God comes down to dwell with his people. But how could his people dwell with him without being consumed by his holiness? That's the tension. And we start to get some answers in our third point. God invites them in. God invites them in. You turn to the end of chapter 27. And you find that there's a shift that comes. So we started, remember with the innermost part of the tabernacle, and we worked our way out. But now the direction goes back in. Now the text turns to describe how people will come into God's tent. So if the tabernacle was the place where God would meet his people, the priest was the person who would lead them into God's presence. So that's what chapters 28 and 29 describe. They describe priests. Now, you look at chapter 28, and you see those headings? Use like It's bold and it's italics. It says the priest's garments. Those headings aren't a part of the original text, but they're often very helpful. So this is what chapter 8 begins with. Chapter 28, excuse me. Describing the priest's garments, their outfits. Now, I don't know. It, it seems like kind of a curious spot to start talking about fashion and outfit choices. But think about it for a second. Clothing can be symbolic for what a person does and the authority that a person holds. All right, so example from our realm. You're driving, maybe 71. Uh, again, we're on speeding again. It's often a topic on Wednesday night uh, <laughs> as everyone glances toward my dad. Uh, <laughs> um, and so two different scenarios. The first, and both in, the first you're, Pulled over by a cop car. Normal enough. You are upset. You're like, why was I speeding? But then the guy who gets out is wearing a T-shirt, cargo shorts, and flip-flops. <laughs> I'm just saying, you're confused. Second scenario. Same thing. Cop car pulls you over. But this time, you're, you're upset. But this time, a person, the person who comes out is wearing a policeman officer's uniform. And it makes sense. So uniform communicates function and authority. So that's what's going on in chapter 28. There are aspects of the priest's uniform or garments that show us how they brought Israel into God's presence. Again, there are lots of details here, some we don't have time to cover, but I want us to see the most important ones. 
So you glance through chapter 28 and notice the stones that were a part of the priest's garments. There were stones on their shoulders and there were stones on their chest. Now both of these sets of stones bore the names of the tribes of Israel. So you look at verse 9. It says, engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. You look at verse 21. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the name of the sons of Israel. So this is symbolic. It was the high priest who would represent the people and symbolically carry the people into God's presence. We see that really come together in verse 29. It says this, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So through the high priest, Israel could enter God's presence. That means the high priest had a secure entrance to God's presence. He was responsible. He bore the burden to do this. And it also means that the people could enter only because they rested on the high priest. But why would God accept the high priest into his presence and not anyone else? I think we get a clue from another part of the high priest's outfit. Look at verse 35. It's what goes on the high priest's forehead. Verse 35 says this, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. So this was a holiness that the Lord requires for someone to enter his presence. But friends, just like the tabernacle, just like the residence God was setting up, now when God invites people in, God invites the priests in, it is gracious, it's a good gift, but there's a tension, isn't there? I mean, were the priests really that special to have the holiness required to stand before God? Were they really that special? Absolutely not. What they wore on their foreheads represented the ideal of what they were to be, but they could never achieve that on their own. That's why as you keep on reading in chapter 29, it goes on to describe that when people became priests, there was a series of sacrifices required before they could ever become a priest. It had to begin with a series of sacrifices, not for the people's sins, but for the priest's sins themselves. Look at chapter 29, verse 35. Sums this up really well. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you, through seven days you shall ordain, that means consecrate or devote. You shall ordain, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. So here, the ones who represented the people and made atonement for their sins had sins of their own that needed atonement, that needed payment. So this leaves us with chapters 30 and 31. Just real quickly, many people conclude that there are just odds and ends matters here, but there is a flow to chapters 30 and 31, just to give you a guided tour, all right? Chapter 30 begins with burning incense, constantly burning incense. This is a symbol of access to God. That's chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. 
And then chapter 30, verses 11 to 16, shows us the who. Chapter 30, verses 17 to 38, shows us the how. And all of chapter 31 shows us the where. So the who, the how, and the where of Israel's approach to God. It describes the redeemed people that, it, that the priests would represent. It describes how the priests would represent them. And it describes where the priests would represent them in this tabernacle. It describes the construction of it. So, you guys know flashbacks? Flashbacks, how, how they show a flashback in a movie. You know, they'll, they'll usually, someone puts their hand on their uh, chin and they'll ponder <laughs> off and, you know, the screen will start to get like, wavy and things will turn to black and white. So flashback with me to chapter 24, all right? Chapter 24, God had just summarized all that he's promised to do for them and he summarized and laying out all that he was calling them to do, the people of Israel. Chapter 24, verse 3, says this. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Here's the important part. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words, of the Lord, of all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Boy, that's a bold statement, isn't it? And God, knowing right away that they will not live up to this, provided a sacrifice that would go in their place. And so here, chapters 25 to 31, this entire system that God sets up, God provides a way that he will continue to stay with them because he knows they will continue to sin. So flash forward, chapter 29, verses 43 to 46 sums up God's purpose in his residence in inviting them in. It sums this up very well. Chapter 29, beginning at verse 43. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So God gave them what they needed for him to dwell and stay with them. That's what all of this is about. This entire system is a system of grace and mercy. For God to dwell with them, they had to be holy, obedient, but what they were called to live up to, what they had promised to live up to, they would fall short of. And yet, and yet, God provided payment for their sins. He provided forgiveness for their sins. And he provided continual cleansing from their sins. So here, God wants to dwell with his people. He sets up residence. He invites them in. 2007 was a landmark year. And now you're all searching for the reason why. It was a landmark year because it was the year that Steve Jobs announced Apple's release of the iPhone. The iPhone was groundbreaking at the time, utilizing cutting-edge technology. And for as much praise as Apple received then, they've probably received more criticism since. Because every year... 
Apple comes out with a new iPhone. And every year they come out with these commercials, you know, they'll, they'll twirl the iPhone around, they'll, they'll pump up really exciting music and highlight all of these new features. But we all know these new features are just relatively minor. And further, one would think that for the amount of money you pay for this iPhone, that it would last <laughs> over $1,000 for a phone. But no, it does not last. They design it so that you will need another one. They have not yet made the perfect iPhone to end all iPhones. In fact, Apple does not want to do that. That would be a bad business model. <laughs> so here, Exodus chapters 25 to 31. They show us God's grace and kindness and all the ways he provides so that he's able to dwell among them. But they also show us attention. They were blocked off from his presence. And even the priests who represented the people had to keep on sacrificing for their own sins. So we ask, could there be something better? Could there be something that's not just a better new addition, but is actually a perfect one and ends the cycle? When we say yes, and it is not something, it is someone. Here's our fourth point then. God still wants to dwell with his people. Nearly every detail in ch from chapters 25 to 31, nearly every detail whispers, I point to Jesus and he will fulfill my purpose. Jesus is the true tabernacle, God's dwelling place on earth. Famously, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, that says, tabernacled among us. Jesus is the true Ark of the Covenant. God reestablishes his rule on earth through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is where the judgment and mercy of God meet at the cross. Jesus is the true high priest who has access to God's presence, not on the basis of an ideal holiness, but because he is actually holy. He needs no sacrifice for his sin because he has no sin. Jesus is the true and final sacrifice. A sacrifice of infinite value because he is truly God and he is sinless. And a sacrifice that is perfectly effective because he is truly man and can represent us. So when Jesus died and rose again, he ended the cycle. He burst open access to God. You remember when he died, the veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place was torn from top to bottom. He ended the cycle of imperfect priests offering imperfect sacrifices because he is the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. So friends, if you don't want to be just told this, but shown it, go to the best commentary on the Old Testament. It's the New Testament. And go back over Hebrews 9. We read part of it this, uh, earlier. And friends, I would encourage you to read Hebrews 9 this afternoon because it is the Lord's day, not just the Lord's morning. Okay? Notice all the elements in Hebrews 9 from Exodus chapters 25 to 31 that Jesus fulfills. For example, notice how he is the perfect priest, how he has access to God's actual presence in heaven. 
Notice how he is the perfect sacrifice, sacrificing himself and presenting the sacrifice of himself to God in heaven. Hebrews 9. Will you read over Exodus 25 to 31? In all these details, it seems really hard to see how this could be practical. And we'll get to that. But just on the surface, right? This is instructions about how to build a tent and it's instructions about the guys who work at this tent. Really. But the details of Exodus 25 to 31 should give us a richer, bigger, and sweeter picture of Jesus. All of these things and more, Jesus has fulfilled. This is the richness of our Lord. So friends, this wasn't just an afterthought either of the New Testament. They didn't just go back to the Old Testament and say, oh, look at all this. We can kind of finagle this to make Jesus seem like this. No, the New Testament repeatedly says that before the foundation of the world, God had planned for his son and his saving work, that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1 and Revelation 5. So a bigger, sweeter view of Jesus. But if we want to get practical for a moment, we can. First, a word to those who have yet to give their lives to Jesus in faith. The God who set up camp among his people, who left a light on, who left bread on the table, that God remains the same today. Only he has set up camp through his son. And friend, you will find, you will not find anyone or anything else like Jesus. There is no other place or person who is safe and secure and eternal dwelling place like Jesus. There is no other person, including ourselves, who can bring us safely into the presence of God because there is no one else who is sinless. There is nothing else that will make us clean and wash away the stains of our sin besides Jesus. And this is his beauty, that although he was sinless, he died for sinners. Only Jesus gives us access to God and peace with God and forgiveness from God. So friend, all we need that is here, and we all need what is here, and where else will you find it? So today, if you have not given your life to Jesus in faith, say to him, save me. By virtue of your sinless life and your death and resurrection in, in my place. And then follow him for the rest of your days. Well, to those who have cried out to Jesus and trust him, follow him, we say a couple things. First, rest and have confidence and keep going. Rest and have confidence and keep going. As is often the case, we don't have to guess how to apply the truth from the Bible because the Bible applies it itself. So we can keep reading in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 23 says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here's the point. Jesus bears your name on himself. Jesus is your eternal dwelling place. He pleads his sacrifice for you when we sin. Justice is satisfied. Access is granted. Peace is won. Heaven is secure. So y'all, our, our day and age is marked by panic and hysteria. As Christ's people, we are able to rest within the storm. To walk humbly. To walk confidently. Because not of ourselves. Because of our Savior. So rest. Have confidence. Keep going. But second, we say to those who have trusted in Jesus, live out this privilege. Live out this privilege. The story of God's dwelling place on earth does not end with Jesus taking on flesh. It continues with us, his people, both as individuals and as a group. We are God's dwelling place on earth. You read of that in Ephesians 2 or 2 Corinthians 6, that God dwells in us by his spirit. So brother and sister in Christ, God dwells in you. God dwells in you. Live like it. This will mean a lot of things, but it might be helpful to think of how you, how you apply this by thinking of how your behavior might change if you had a really important person who you loved and admired stay in your home. How your behavior might change if that happened. You would want to enjoy their presence. You would hang on to their every word. You would probably shut up when they started talking. You would want to behave in such a way that respects and honors them. Heck, you would even invite others to your house to meet that person. We can keep going. But friends, live like he's actually there. What a privilege. But we have to say it too. We'll fail to live up to this privilege. We just will. So what do we do then? We remember that God has not saved us and God does not dwell in us because of our achievements, but because of Christ's achievements. So rest again in your perfect high priest who brings you to God, who died for your sins, and who lives to bring you to himself. And one day, we will dwell with God face to face. So rest, keep going, be confident. Let's pray. Lord, we, your grace multiplies. There's grace upon grace. There's riches in you, Lord Jesus that we cannot plumb, that eternity we cannot plumb. And so this morning we see just the fullness of the plan that you've fulfilled. And we are so thankful that we are recipients. God, we pray that for those who perhaps do not trust Jesus in faith, that you would give them faith, you would help them consider that there is nothing and no one else like you, and that they need you. 
God, for us who have grasped you in faith, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Help us to live out this privilege of you dwelling with us and in us. And God, when we don't, remember that our standing with you is not dependent on us. This is dependent on him. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.